uh, Stone Cold, you do whatever the hell you want. You got it. This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for the Dale Jr. Download. Co-host Mike Davis is here. Matthew Dillner, live on. Ready to get body slammed, guys? Ooh. I mean, if there's a show that could do it, this might be it. Why? Because Stone Cold Steve Austin is on the show, plus memories of learning how to drive, guys. Memories of learning how to drive? I mean, I'm still kind of learning. How we learned to drive. All right, let's get started. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Holy crap. I don't give a shit. No. Grow a pair. And lock that in. God, you bunch of babies. I will dump the shit out of somebody. Okay, we got legendary wrestler Stone Cold Steve Austin in the house. I'm excited about this. We've met before, uh, but it's always been at a racetrack. You've been brought in to give the command, wave the green flag, things like that. We've never really been able to sit down, but you've got a TV show. Tell fans a little bit about that real quick. Man, we're just uh, traveling around uh, different parts of America and uh, just roll up on different people that I find interesting, you, you being one of them. Yeah. And so we you know, kind of do some activities, uh, have some conversation. It's a good time, and uh, it kind of puts me back out on the road. You know, I retired from wrestling business in 2003, and I did a little bit of acting. I don't really yeah. care to act. I don't like to remember anything. So uh, we, we come up with this show, and I've been podcasting for about five or six years. Yeah. But to get back out on the road is kind of the fun part. And so I think the, the show is going to premiere sometime this summer, and I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to you know talking with you. Yeah, I've seen some good clips of the show. Um, basically, just hanging out, talking, having great conversation with people. And so I'm looking forward to, to doing that later today. But uh, this morning, you've been kind enough to come out here and, and join us on our podcast uh, we got a lot of questions for you. Um, you said that you got your own podcast. How do you enjoy doing the podcast yourself? You know what? I wanted to get in the podcast business about a year before I did, but man, I'm the worst at technology. So I didn't know, you know what to do. So uh, Podcast One uh, called my agents up, and my agents called me and said, Hey, man, Podcast One called and asked if you want to do a podcast. I said, Hell yeah, I do. So we started that thing up. And I started with just doing one show a week, and then uh, it, it hit real good. <clears throat> so we started doing two. So I really enjoyed it because, uh, you know, when you get away from the kind of the, the global entity that WWE is, you know, it's a worldwide platform. And all of a sudden you go from that to nothing. And so if I've got something I want to talk about, push this out or whatever, or some awareness, you got to have a voice. And so, you, you know, I might as well be standing on the corner with a megaphone. You know, now with the podcast, it's not the same size as WWE, but it's that platform. Yeah. So I love it. And, uh, you know, I run two shows. I run a family-friendly show. And, man, I, I love to salt and pepper my language with four-letter words. So I run an explicit <laughs> content show yeah. as well. Wow. That's kind of my go-to. That's my favorite one. And I've been on a break for about three or four months. I had to get some things taken care of. But I, I really enjoy it. And I kind of stay a little bit wrestling-centric. Uh, but I like to talk to people from all walks of life. You gave me this hat when you came in, Broken Skull Ranch. What is Broken Skull Ranch? Broken Skull Ranch. I sold that place about three years ago, man. <laughs> oh, no. you did? I didn't yeah. know that. I didn't either. That ranch was my pride and joy. It was always uh, my goal to own a ranch in South Texas, deer hunting and stuff like that, mm-hmm. because that's where we grew up. And uh, finally, uh, I said, man, it's time to buy a place. 
and I uh, found 2,000 acres down there in South Texas in a, a part of Texas known as the Golden Triangle. And it's called the Golden Triangle because everything that grows within a specific region is very high in protein. And that's the brush country. And everything that, that grows out there will cut you, stick you, or hurt you, but it's high protein for the deer. So if you've got genetics and you get, give them some time, you can grow some big-ass deer. Yeah. And uh, once I shut the gate, I love people. And I performed in front of people, you know, my whole career. But also left to my own devices, man, I, I'm a hermit. So if me and my wife go down there with our dogs and I don't see another human being for a couple of months, it was a good time. And finally, it just got, uh, it got to be where it was just too much work. You know, 1,500 miles down there and 1,500 miles back. And there's always work on each end to be done. Mm-hmm. And I maintain that place like a state park. And when the, when the Oldfield came in, that kind of changed things a little bit because I was a, I was a surface owner. And so if you got minerals, that means you can come in on my property and use my surface to get your minerals. And you know, once the oilfield happened, I just kind of kind of lost uh, interest in it. And I said, hey, it's time to get out. And so uh, we, we bought a place in Nevada and around Reno, which is a thousand miles closer. So I'm able to get there more often to enjoy the great outdoors. And with Nevada being such, uh, you know, 90% of Nevada is public land, so I get out of my side-by-side, my four-wheelers, and I can ride anywhere I want, and I love that. Mm. You talked about Texas. You're from Texas. What part? Born in Austin, Texas. Is it Austin has a lot of different low, you know, sort of boroughs in there. What was the particular area, though? I cannot remember because <laughs> uh, uh, my dad, I think he was changing tires at a or running a tire store. Yeah. And uh, something went wrong, and my mom and dad split up. Oh. My mom went down to Victoria, Texas. Victoria. Yes, sir. Well, I say that because my wife, Amy's from Victoria, and a lot of people in Victoria claim you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh and, yeah. I claim, and I claim Victoria. Right on. So it's true. Oh, All absolutely. Right. I was born in Austin, but when my mom uh, had to get out of there, she went down to Victoria, and uh, that's where she met my stepdad, awesome, Ken man. Williams. Yeah. And uh, we lived there for a couple of years. My dad was selling insurance. And then finally, we moved 25 miles up the road to a little town called Edna, about 5,000 people. And that's where we all started school. But I was in Victoria for a couple of years. And as a matter of fact, when I came up with the Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, moniker, because when I, when I came into WWE, they wanted to call me the ringmaster. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They didn't have any designs on making me a worldwide <laughs> superstar. Right. And uh, so after about six months of that, I said, hey, man, I need to come up with this different name. And I came up, we came up with the Stone Cold thing, and I said, you know, i got to be from some, some place that's got a cool ring to it. And uh, I couldn't be Steve Austin from Austin, Texas, because that's redundant. Yeah. And then everybody always wants to be from a big city, right? You know, Los Angeles, California, or Las Vegas, or something with some pizzazz to it. I said, man, I said, man, I'm from a small town. I love the way Victoria, Texas sounds. It's got a ring to it. You remember it. You might not know where it is, but you'll look on a map and try to find it. And I actually lived there. And our our old address was 404 Rhodes Road. Uh, The people living there, you know, right now probably mad at me for saying that. <laughs> little bitty ass house. And, uh, yeah, I cut my teeth there in Victoria. What would you do in Texas growing up? The only thing you could. If you was in South Texas, you had to play football. Right. And uh, I love baseball, so I played baseball as well. And then uh, I threw the discus. Uh, I thought it was going to be a long-distance runner. And I was running around the track one time jogging because I had good endurance back in the day. And uh, I seen this boy huffing and puffing over there, throwing the damn discus. And I said, man, let me give that a whirl. And I threw that damn thing out there, and I threw it way further than he did. So I said, man, to, uh, to hell with the long distance running. I'll, th- I'll start throwing the discus. You found your sport right Found there. my sport. <laughs> so I, I played football, baseball, and track. And then my, my dad, my stepdad, and we, we don't use the word step in our family. Right. 
So my dad got us uh, hunting, and we had never hunted before. And I'll never forget, you know, trailing behind him, you know, my older brother Scott, me, and then Kevin walking behind my dad in the woods. He's carrying his rifle, and he was forever looking behind us going, you know, be quiet with that that, that come-to-Jesus oh, look. Yeah. Yeah. Stop stepping on twigs. So just playing sports, saltwater fishing, and hunting. First job. Landscape guy, my senior league baseball coach, a guy named Dan Metter. And uh, he was a landscape guy. And so I started working in the landscape business, uh, planting stuff and, and uh, mowing yards, but basically landscaping. And then through that, I'd work on lease crews, cleaning up oil field stuff, hauling hay out there in South Texas, uh, worked for the highway department, uh, you know, in the summer, you know, driving a, a cement truck or, you know, that, that asphalt truck, patching roads or putting patches in roads. A- anything that was manual labor, I, I specialized in. Yeah, that makes sense. He's a work ethic guy. I, I, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. I think that that's what Steve Austin is about. He wants accountability and work your ass off. Am I right? Well, the, the thing about, you know, growing up in our household, I mean, you was going to do your chores. And there wasn't no two ways about it. Uh, dad had a strict set of rules and, uh, you know, and so did mom. And we all, we rotated on doing the dishes. We, we rotated on mowing the yard and we had a system. If, if you did, if you wouldn't go work, you wouldn't go, you can get your ass handed to you. Yeah. And that's just the way it was. How, what was, uh, so what was your favorite sport? Was it football or baseball? It was football, and I loved baseball. I played catcher, and I had a pretty good arm on me. Did you think you were um, good enough to go in the NFL, or did you? Where, so I feel, did. Yeah. I did. In a, in a small system that we were in down there in South Texas, we were playing 2 and 3A ball. And so Houston's 100 miles away. That's, that's all the 5A schools, and that's where all the badass athletes mm-hmm. at, okay? So down there in South Texas, I, I was – you knew who uh, – my last name used to be Williams, uh-huh. number 32. You knew who Williams for uh, the Edna Cowboys was. That was me, and I would run your ass over. <laughs> I ran north and south because I couldn't afford to run east and west. Yeah. And so they give me that football. It was a sweep left or a sweep right or something right up the middle, and I was running downfield and coming out of high school. And I just think, man, all these schools got to come recruit me because right. I'm a pretty good running back. All I got was a junior college offer, and I was offended and upset. And I needed that scholarship offer because my parents couldn't afford to pay for no college. And I want to keep playing football. So I go to a little school outside of Houston called Wharton County Junior College. And I'll never forget, I was talking to my mom's friend, Evelyn. And I said, oh, Evelyn, don't worry about it. I'll go to junior college and make All-American for a couple of years and then go to a big school. Hmm. Let me tell you something. <laughs> there are some football-playing fools in the junior college system that either, you know, they can't make the grades or they, they got a learning disability or something like that, but they will knock your ass out. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to get two scholarship offers out of there uh, to University of New Mexico and uh, North Texas State University out of Denton, Texas. I took my trip to New Mexico. They took me skiing. I went to North Texas, and I knew I didn't want to leave the great state of Texas. And I got out there. And uh, I was running a 40-yard dash one time, and the JUCO coach had pumped up my stats a little bit. We're out there running 40-yard dashes, and the guy, a coach, head coach called me over and goes, Williams, come here. He said, Williams, come here. I, yeah, coach, what's wrong? He goes, you're running a 4-9-40. I said, yep. I said, your coach at junior college said you ran a 4-7. 
I said, hell, coach, I ain't never run a 4-7 in my life. <laughs> he said, Williams, get out of here. Yeah. So anyway, I, I blew my ACL out on my junior year playing linebacker, and I came back the next season. I started all uh, 11 games at weak side defensive end, and I know you love the Redskins. Oh, yeah. I, I, I saw the writing on the wall, and football wasn't as fun as it used to be, uh-huh. and that's when you know I segued out of there. And I left college with 17 hours to graduate and started working on a freight dock Driving a forklift. Holy cow. Manual labor. Did you ever go back and finish your college? People have asked me that, and I know a lot of people go back and and do that, but I have nothing to prove. Me getting a degree and putting it on the wall means nothing to me. Now, when I talk to young kids and stuff like that these days, I say, hey, man, arm yourself with as much education as you can get, or go to a trade school, learn how to weld or work on, you know, something mechanical. But for me, it doesn't mean anything. It was going to help me in my endeavors from there on out. So fill in the gaps between right. when you graduated college to how you got involved in wrestling. What right. happened in that period? Yeah, where did that start? Well, from uh, well, I remember one time I was at the house. I was seven or eight years old, and I was flipping channels on TV, and you did it by hand back in. My mom was over here in the chair, and I come across Houston wrestling, and I saw Dusty Rhodes bleeding his ass off, and somebody <laughs> had an iron claw on him. And it was a smoke-filled arena at Sam Houston Coliseum. And there was a guard walking around the ring. And there was only a rope banister, and it was smoky. Everybody was smoking back in. And, I, you know, the guy had a pistol. He had a sidearm on. And Dusty was in bad shape. And I looked at my mom. She's over reading Red Book. And I said, Mom, I said, why don't that security guard go over there and help Dusty? Because you know, he got a gun. <laughs> and, uh, he yeah. was in on the gig. Yeah. But I was hooked. So I knew, you know, at the end of the day, my, my goal was to be a professional wrestler. Oh, really? That early? But how, that old, early. how old were you there? Seven or eight. Yeah. Okay. I watched my whole life, and I'd been there watching wrestling. My brothers and my sister coming there, man, turn this stuff right. off, man. We want to watch something <laughs> else. I said, hey, man, it's only an hour show. Let me watch this, and you can watch whatever you want to watch. I wasn't allowed to watch wrestling in, uh, in my house because it apparently made me too hyper. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine. But that. man, we, me and my sister Kelly used to sneak in our wrestling. We it come uh, NWA would come on uh, Saturday mornings, and uh, Dusty Rhodes was my favorite. One of my favorite Magnum TA. Yes. Um, Tully Blanchard, Ole and Arn Anderson, all those guys. Ric Flair obviously was a big, big deal here in Charlotte. Who were some of your heroes? You mentioned Dusty. Who were some of the other guys that were heroes of yours growing up? A lot of guys you just mentioned, and I consider Dusty uh, to be one of the greatest of all time. And, you know, he was a heavy set guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dusty could work his ass off. He could tell a story, and he could sure talk. He could talk a blue streak. And I love Dusty, but I, I consider myself uh, to be the greatest world champion in the history of the business is Nature Boy Ric Flair. Oh, man. And as far as just an in-ring performer, then you go to like a Shawn Michaels. Uh, but it, it, the guys you just named, really? Yeah. Did you try to emulate them like, like, like we all did as a kid when we're yeah. playing wrestling and we're like, who, I'm going to be this. Who, who were you? Well, you know, that was the problem with the early part of my career when I was with the world, world Championship Wrestling in Atlanta. You know, I started off in Dallas. They shipped me over to Tennessee Territory. I was starving my ass off. We worked the same uh, towns every single week, and I was making $15, $20 a night. You know, most of those trips, you know, three or 400-mile round trips, and you can't even afford to eat. You got two guys riding with you, and they're putting gas. I had a, I had a 1988 Hyundai Excel. Mm. Payments were $154 a month. My brother co-signed the lease for me, and that thing almost got repoed a couple times. <laughs> and I was never going to get it repoed because I wasn't going to screw my brother, right? Yeah. So, uh, man, I, I was starving. I was literally starving. 
And I patterned the early part to answer your question, uh, the early part of my career in uh, world championship wrestling after Nature Boy Ric Flair. And I was kind of like thought of as being the next Ric Flair when, in all actuality, there will never be another yeah. Ric Flair. And that actually kind of was, was a hindrance to my development because yanging out Ric Flair, Ric Flair, because he was still in the territory. We'd go to uh, television tapings in Gainesville and over in Anderson, South Carolina, some of those uh, towns around Atlanta because we're all based out of Atlanta. A lot of guys based out of North Carolina as well. And, man, you go to, like, a, a tag team situation or a six-man tag, and I'd be on the same team with Rick. Mm. And all of a sudden, the man goes there and there and just lights it up. Mm. And you're <laughs> sitting on the apron thinking, okay, you thought you was good, and you think you're going to overtake this guy, and you realize not so fast, my friend, because when Ric Flair turned it on, there wasn't no following it. Oh, yeah. wow. Did how does You know, how do you guys – you know, the promos is what a lot of people remember. How do you guys work on that? How do you become so good at it? I'll tell you what, you start off being bad at it. You know, right. I started in Dallas, Texas. I saw a commercial on TV when I was back at my college dorm. And this one, I was still driving that forklift for Watkins Motor Lines. And I said, hey, man, I need to go check this out. So I went down there to the seminar, signed up. Five months later, I'm having my first match. I'm out there. You talk about green as grass. And this is back when I, before I had to go tea and I had long blonde hair down the middle of my back. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good-looking kid. <laughs> and I don't know what the hell happened. And I go out there and I start trying to talk because they're trying to promote the school. Or I got a few promo opportunities. And you, when you first start off, your voice is kind of high. You don't know how to talk from your diaphragm. You don't really know what to say. You haven't really created a character, so there's no base or, or you know, ground base to build from. And so you flounder. And when you go out there, well, you're doing the best you can. But, you know... Uh, when you to bed, you have done just that. And yeah. and once you fall on your face enough, you learn, hey, man, this is sink or swim. These are shark-infested waters. <laughs> you better succeed or your ass is going to get left behind. So it, it, it's very competitive. And so finally, if you go through the paces uh, enough, and uh, when I got to World Championship Wrestling, they teamed me. They didn't know what to do with me. They knew I was a talent, but they didn't figure I had it yet. So he stuck me in a tag team with Flying Brian Pillman. Mm. And if you remember Flying Brian, we used to drive down the road, and Brian was one of those guys who would sit there and read uh, uh, you know, dictionaries and, and books oh. uh, just to try to increase his vocabulary. Mm. And he was out there, and he was forward-thinking. And if you put a microphone in front of his face, he always had something to say. So all of a sudden, it was like, man, hey, you better crank it up, Steve, or you're going to look like a deaf mute next to, to Brian because right. he's lighting it up. So he kind of pushed me. And then uh, it, it was really when I started learning how to cut a promo deal. Uh, I was over in Japan. It was a three-week tour, and I jumped off the top turnbuckle uh, on a guy, and he moved. And I bent this arm too far up under me. I tore my right tricep off my arm. Oof. So I wrestled for two and a half weeks, you know, with the torn tricep. Because back in the day, and you know from injuries you suffered, hey, you, you worked through it. And then, uh, you know, when I came back, Oh, hell, I forgot where I was going with that story. What were we talking about? Promos. Promos. Uh, when I came back, that's when Paul Heyman uh, called me up. I answered the phone. He goes, hey, Steve. He had just started up ECW down there in Philly. And he goes, I want you to come work for me. I said, hell, I can't work, Paul. I said, I got a busted arm. He goes, you ain't got to work. Cut promos. Mm. I said, well, man, I had 10 acres. I had a log cabin, a wife and a kid. I needed the money. Started flying to Philly every week. And Paul Lee sat me down one time. It was about 4.30 in the morning. That's how we ran over at ECW. 
And I was I, I was a new guy in the territory, so I was letting everybody talk first because I'm not going to jump in a system because I come from the big territory, yeah. and I can't talk worth a damn anyway. And so he says, hey, Steve, he goes, you're up. I said, well, hell, Paul. I said, what do you want me to talk about? I said, what am I doing? He goes, just just talk about how you're feeling. Just, just, just talk. And he turned the cameras on, and I rattled off that promo still on uh, YouTube, ECW, and uh, I talked for about six minutes, nonstop, ad lib, told it like it was. And that was probably the groundbreaking promo where I started feeling who and what I was. And I hadn't come up with the Stone Cold thing yet, but I realized at that point that the who I was in that ring was based, I'm, I'm competitive as, as hell in anything I do. So what I was was when you turned me up to 11, that's me. Mm. And Paul Heyman helped you know, kind of uh, teach me how to focus as a laser with a promo to deliver a message, get that message across and affect people and make people feel things because that's how you draw money. That, that's interesting because I, I think know. they're great communicators All and the, people don't give them credit to be a good freaking, communicator. Oh, people give them credit. The promos are probably the most watched thing that you'll I agree. Heck yeah. You know, that's what everybody's waiting on is his promo or, <laughs> or you know. But you know what I've always wondered? You know, because we would always try to emulate this. And so to emulate a promo, you'd have to get grungy and get that raspy voice. And then you got to start yelling. And then as soon as you start doing that, your throat gets itchy and you start coughing. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Well, again, that goes back to learning how to speak from your diaphragm. And it's funny because going back to those old promos, there was different periods uh, of, of the wrestling industry. And especially a lot of those guys out of NWA territory, because that was my favorite territory. Uh, that and Mid-South Power Pro by Bill Watts. But there, there became a trend back in the day. Everybody would say, brother, brother, let me tell yeah. you something, brother. <laughs> Pally, you know, it's like you, you go into the brother mode. Yeah. Everybody's saying brother because it's the end thing to do. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. That oh, was the trend. Funny. That was the trend, was. brother. But oh, the right. last thing you want to do is start hacking and coughing during the promo sure. when you're trying to give somebody the bottom line. It sort of loses its luster, doesn't it? it? Does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's all choked up, but he really wants it's to like, deliver a message. It's like, I'm going to whoop your ass. Hold on. Hey, <laughs> hey what yeah, I was but, saying. But, you know, sometimes you get out there and, you know, if, if it's a post-match promo, you're a little cotton mouth because right. you've been out there. You don't know what the conditions are. It could be a smoke-filled arena. And you, you do get a cotton mouth. I mean, so you're out there trying to just string some words together and realize that, that again, every time you go out there, it's sink or swim, and especially on live TV. When that red right. light's running, that's when I like it the most. Really? Mm. So oh, yeah. at the end, toward the end of your career, you've been doing promos for years. Was it? Do you still get nervous? Like, I was always, people say, man, you still get nervous? I'm like, hell yeah, I still get nervous. I mean, I was always nervous. All the way up to the last race, I was nervous. Were you still nervous? Yeah, I, th I think to to a degree, but I was so ready. And man, when, when you're in that mode, and that's that's what you do. And I always call, I always tell everybody when you're living in the wrestling life. I mean, you kind of like turn into a zombie. You're going through life, but your job is to be on. You're a road warrior. You're on the road, and sometimes you're on the road strung out so long, you're ready to get back home. As soon as you get back home, you're ready to get back out on the road. You put your suitcases by the washer and dryer. You wash the, the dirty stuff and get back out. And, you know, you get back out on the road. Uh, what was the point we was trying to make? Are you still nervous? At the oh, end, yeah. But the going to the you, – you, uh, it's a nervous energy. You want to go out there and you know – you like the thing I did with Mike Tyson. 
Mike Tyson goes out there and I say, hey, man, I got one time to get this thing right. So there's some nervous energy, but because I was stone cold, I live with Steve Austin now, but, you know, back in those days, you could get, you could still get some nerves, but the bigger the crowd, the, the more cameras there was, I thrived on it. How, how would you get in the mode? Oh, what, what did you do to get in the mode? Nothing. They're, like I said, you, you turn me up to 11. A lot of guys go out there and they're doing push-ups. They're putting on baby oil <laughs> and stuff like that. Or, you know, I've seen guys butt locker, hit, you know, butt their heads on lockers. Uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, looking at guys' different uh, warm-up routines before they went out. And uh, I was talking to a guy, and he goes, man, one time I was watching uh, all the guys backstage, and the guy I liked the most was Jake Snake Roberts' warm-up routine. And I said, why? What'd he do? He goes, well, he had the snake in a bag on top of a trash can, and he was smoking a cigarette. And they oh, said, no. Jake, your music's on. So Jake took a dra last drag out of that cigarette, crushed it with the toe of his boot, and walked to the ring. <laughs> that was the Jake the Snake warm-up for me because I was always uh, – kind of lily white we used to tan a lot to try to look cool for television <laughs> because i was always so ashy and i wore shorts 24 7 365 it didn't matter what state we was in i always wear shorts so i'd look real ashy so my routine was wave my arms a couple of times i may do a couple of push-ups but i'm gonna pour water all over me just to give me a sheen and so i didn't look ashy white for yeah, camera that's funny that was my warm-up routine and wow. i was ready to go so how did stone cold steve austin come about <sighs> Tricky story. Uh, I was uh, the ringmaster. I got the phone call. This is back when phones were still on the wall, and everybody used cell phones these days. I had a long cord on that thing, so you walk around half a house with it. <laughs> that was the modern-day yeah. cell phone. That was a cell phone. Yes, yeah, so I had that maroon phone, on, and that phone rang. I said, hello. I get this, I get this voice on the end of it. Vince McMahon. Just started talking right away with the sales pitch. He goes, I want to, want to bring in. And I'd, I'd already met with Vince McMahon three times, and I could see that they didn't have any interest in me as, as like a superstar. They were bringing me in as what we call in the business a mechanic, a mm -hmm. guy who is very proficient in the ring and can have good matches with anybody, and you need those guys on the crew, right? That's all they had for me. And anyway, they were going to bring me in as a ringmaster, the million-dollar champion. Ted DiBiase was going to be my manager because – Vince hadn't seen me speak yet and thought I was a deaf mute. And, and so yeah. Yeah, I was going to have a mouthpiece. And I didn't like that. But when you got a house payment and, and cars, a uh, car to pay for, you need the money. So I said, okay, I'll sign up. I did that for six months. And I knew that there was no future in being the ringmaster. And so I was at the, at the house in my log cabin, and I was having a couple. And I watched his show on HBO about that serial killer, Richard Kuklinski, who was a hitman over in Chicago, whatever. And I don't endorse nothing the guy sure. did, but the guy was called Iceman because he was very cold-blooded. And uh, But I was, I was a heel in the business. I was a bad guy. Oh, okay. So it's my job to be hated. So I took that idea, and I called the office. I said, hey, man, I, I got this idea. I want to be like a cold-blooded, you know, remorseless, you know, a, a heel. And I told him about the Iceman name. Well— there was a guy in Texas at a uh, world-class championship wrestling who had already been the Iceman, Iceman King Parsons, because we don't want to do that. And so they, they sent me three pages of these horrible names, Fang McFrost, <laughs> no Otto Von Rootless, <laughs> and Ice Dagger. And I'm thinking, these guys are supposed to be creative geniuses, right. and this is the best shit they got. And I was like, I threw the pages up. I said, I... My wife at the time was from England, and they drink hot tea over there. So 
she brought me a cup of hot tea and she goes, oh, don't worry about it. Just drink, just drink your tea before it gets stone cold. And she said, that's your name, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mm. So I called the office. I pitched it. I said, hey, man, I want to be Stone Cold Steve Austin and I want to be from Victoria, Texas. And Jerry Briscoe says, all right, I'll run it by Vince and uh, see what he says. So unceremoniously, that's how I, we came up with Stone Cold but, Steve and, Austin. And Vince was receptive immediately, or did you have to talk him in? Because that's funny. I bet there's a lot of people that call up and go, this is what I want to be called now. Oh, absolutely there's a lot of that. But because we knew that the ringmaster wasn't going anywhere, the ringmaster was originally supposed to be, when I look back at some of those prototype drawings of it, you know, the, this this cool, symmetrical, you know, outfit and he was you know the master of the ring this technician you know i was more of a romp i'm stomping i could wrestle technical but i wasn't that kind of guy as far as ring gear goes i was pretty basic you know boots you know some uh, boots some knee pads and some uh trunks and they had this this pretty design and the, the ringmaster didn't work. There, there was no je ne sais quoi to that. You, you ain't gonna look. <laughs> was that when, one out of Flying Brian's dictionary? Did you? Yeah. Do that? <laughs> when you, when you see that, I knew that that name didn't have no marquee value to it. Ringmaster. Right. Now, all of a sudden, I'll never forget having a conversation with Razor Ramon. Uh, it was Scott Hall. Yeah. And and uh, I was just starting the Stone Cold thing, and he goes. So what's with the Stone Cold thing, man? What's that all about? He's pretty cool. I love that guy. He's he's really knowledgeable about the wrestling business. I said, I said, oh man, just a name change, but uh, it'll work. And man, uh, I'll never forget. We we started doing that, and uh, they what started. What year was this when you began? Ninety six, back in ninety six, oh, wow. and uh, I started getting some uh, some promotional some promo opportunities and some chances to do a little bit of color. And this is important to that Stone Cold development. Uh, because I, I wasn't there yet. You know, you don't just come up with a name and just you're there. It's developing. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody here develops into a great race car driver overnight, right? So uh, I, I noticed uh, this was a period of the business when there was a little bit of a lull. So we'd do Monday Night Raw live uh, one night, and then we'd film the next one the next week, and it'd go to post-production. And then they'd play it the next week, and even though we'd filmed it the week before because you couldn't afford to just do two live nights. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed when I was watching that show that went to post, they were starting to edit a lot of the stuff I said out of the show. And I'd be at home watching, you know, or I'd just catch a replay of, of the broadcast on the VCR. And I was like, hey, man, I said this then, and they cut it out. So I remember we was up TV. Is it Lowell, Massachusetts, or Worst, or something like that? And I seen Vince walking across the parking lot into the building. And I, I, I said, I didn't know Vince very well. I'd been there six, seven, eight months, but I didn't really know him that well. And I said, uh, but you got to take control of your career at some point. So I said, hey, Vince, I said, you got a second? And I, I didn't put a whole lot of bass in my voice. <laughs> I'm like, hey! Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Did <laughs> you water your yourself over up? Here. You got to sing now first. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hey, man. Uh, he goes, sure, Steve. And I said, hey, man, I noticed when I'm watching uh, the, the show back from Post, I said, you guys are starting to edit a lot of things I'm saying. I said, I wonder why that is. Okay, remember, I was supposed to be a bad guy. He goes, uh, quite frankly, Steve, he goes, you're popping a lot of guys in the truck. And it, what, he, what he means by that, when you pop the guys in the truck, that's a production truck. Those guys have seen and heard everything. So if I'm enlisting a response from them and they're, they're laughing their ass off or so much trash, you know, that I was spewing, it's entertaining those guys. And so that's a good thing. But because it was getting that kind of reaction out of them, he wanted it to be cut out because I was trying to be hated. Uh, that was my version of South Texas trash. Yeah. And I looked at him right there and I told him, I said, Vince, 
I said, you got guys here 6'10", 7 feet, 300, 320 pounds. I said, I'm 6'1", 250, black trunks, black boots, bald head goatee. I said, if you don't give me my personality, I can't compete. But if you give me my personality, I said, I can compete with anybody you got. And he goes, okay, Steve. And that's when he stopped editing me, and that's when he let that South Texas trash fly, and that's when we started heating up, and, and I really found myself. Mm, was that when you weren't a heel anymore? Well, I was still a heel. I was a trash-talking heel, and, and there was a version of me, really, if you go back to superstar Billy Graham, because Billy Graham was a heel, but he was becoming so uh, entertaining, people started liking him. And then, you know, Bob Backlund beat him for the championship, and Billy Graham was gone, and he kind of, I think it kind of really affected him. But uh, I was a heel still then, uh, and, but the business was changing. And due to the roster of guys we had, and we had some great guys, uh, times were changing. And I was talking so much trash. Brian Pillman had just came into the WWF at the time, and I'd go out there and I'd be working with baby faces, and we'd be, he, I'd come back from the match, and he'd be, he'd be waiting for me, and he goes, God dang, kid, you're a baby face. And I'd say, F you, I'm a heel. But I was getting those kind of cheers. Right. So Vince had the the, the forethought uh, to, hey, you know what? At the time, Bret Hart had been around so long, and he's one of my favorites. And uh, he said, you know, Bret's kind of starting to complain a little bit, and people are starting to boo him. So he had this big idea to put us in a match in WrestleMania 13, and what we did was go out there. When, when I went out there, I, I was – Pretty much universally received as a heel, but there was a lot of positive response. I got a lot of pops. Yeah. When Brett came out, a lot of pops, some boos. Ken Shamrock, special referee. We went out there and, and, and executed one of the rarest things you can do in a professional wrestling match, which, uh, which is a double turn. Oh, I, <laughs> I, by the end of that match, like that, I had I had went from a heel to a baby. He went from a baby to a heel. Wow. Now understand, nothing happens overnight. There was still work sure. to be done on the back end to further you know those paths. But that that was, that was probably that was the match that really made and launched my career. And I've. I've given Bret Hart so much credit for that because he handpicked me a year earlier to work with him when he's making a comeback from a knee injury. But yeah. it was that story. And that's, that's when I started becoming the baby face or the good guy. And I've always preferred working heel because I, I was going to ask you that. It's so, it's so much more comfortable. You could do anything. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's kind of fun to make people hate you. Yeah. It's <laughs> easier to make people hate you than it's like you, I think. Right. And, like, if you trip on a stair or the rope's getting in the ring as a baby face, as a good guy, you got egg on your face. <laughs> yeah. If you trip as a heel, the worst they can do is laugh at you. And you say, hey, F you, I tried to do that. Right. You, there's more creative freedom in being a heel. That's interesting. I, I, I always found that interesting, too. I was watching videos of, like, uh, Jake the Snake and then also, like, Honky Tonk Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, wow. then, and, and I realized that I think they preferred being a heel and I always wondered that why why that why that preference? And now you're just answering it. The creative freedom, but ultimately, do you become champion? Uh, do you become the you know the champion and in, in the of of the long play, the long time champion as a heel? No, no, no. I, I became the really uh, uh, as a babyface. No, no. I'm saying in general though. Is that like oh. do people prefer being a heel? What's the? I think it's all personal. There's a lot of people love being a good guy. Right? Okay, babyface okay. we'd say. I mean, so I mean, you know, and you look at uh, Hulk Hogan, one of the greatest of all time. The you know until he went NWO, he was a babyface his entire uh -huh. life. One of the, the biggest draws in the history of the business. So yeah, it's all pre preference. And, well, here, here's the thing: by the time you know 
I had turned babyface and become so successful at that. People had kind of forgot about that, that kind of two-year heel run, mm-hmm. and I was effective as a heel. Mm-hmm. But I became so beloved as that babyface. When we went to WrestleMania 17, Vince always likes to do something special. And I was working with The Rock, and we set a new Astrodome attendance record on that on that pay-per-view. And I said, hell, man. I said, well, after the match, why don't I turn heel? And so I did turn heel. But it was kind of like, uh, as Jim Ross would put it, you never want to see – John Wayne as the bad guy. Right. That's how beloved he was. By the yeah. time, you know, I, I'd become that a version of John Wayne. People didn't want to hate me, but I just wanted to do it because I loved being a heel. I thought it'd be great for the business. Even and, when you tried to turn heel, you couldn't. Yeah. We tried for a long time, but it wasn't a good idea yeah. from, from a business standpoint. And people wanted to love me. They wanted to cheer for me. They wanted to have a good time with me, drink beer, right. raise hell. Yeah, that's right. You were one of a kind, so nobody wanted to see you change. Real quick before we get back to Stone Cold, let's hear from our friends over at Valvoline. As many of you probably know, I was sponsored by Valvoline for several years, and I even drove a Valvoline car at Darlington back in 2015. That baby was hot. Mm. A lot of drivers are sponsored by motor oils, but Valvoline, they're a little different. They're more than just another logo on the suit or on the quarter panel of the race car. Valvoline is a true partner, and they always were hands-on in helping us make our engines perform better. They'd send teams over to Charlotte to work directly with our engine guys in the garage to squeeze a few more horsepower out of our engines. We literally mixed oils together, different combinations, to try to get the power that we needed for whatever track we were racing at. It didn't matter if we were running plates, road courses, short tracks, or intermediates. They always had a solution to make our stuff better. Valvoline even helped me get the monkey off my back at Martinsville in 2014 where I got my first win ever on NASCAR's oldest track. That's why Valvoline is the only motor oil I trust in my engine and it's why you should trust them in your engine too. From high mileage rides that need that thick anti-wear film to newer engines that have carbon buildup. Head over to Valvoline.com slash Dale to find the product spec for your engine. That's Valvoline.com slash Dale. Describe... So there's, for me, um, there's there's certainly different eras where the sport peaked. What's the difference between your era? It don't even seem like you retired that long ago. Uh, 2003, I guess, is a long time ago, but it doesn't seem like it. Um, but it, describe the peak, which was a huge, huge era for, for wrestling in your prime, to what we have now. Well, I think if you look at the peak – it was when uh, Eric Bischoff went down to WCW working for Ted Turner, and they decided, hey, man, WWF at the time, you know, they got it Monday Night Raw. Well, why don't we go head-to-head? And, and, you know, because Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, some of those guys have migrated down there. He goes, why don't we go head-to-head with them? And, man, that was the Monday Night Wars. And, man, we was throwing everything but the kitchen sink every single Monday night. Yeah. You were getting a main event pay-per-view type card because it was a war. Yeah. And they kicked our ass for two years. And then finally we started spinning up. I got hot. Here comes the rock. Taker mm-hmm. reinvented himself. DX comes along. Mick Foley heating up. I mean, all of a sudden all our irons started heating up. And I, I was leading the charge. I, I keep it on the DL, but I was leading no, the charge. I sure heated was. up. And, man, once we started beating them, we never looked back. And then, hell, Vince ended up buying the whole company for, t- for pennies on the dollar. And, okay, now go, go to now, put Ted Turner out of business. Uh, there's a new organization, AEW, just started. But, but right here and now, man, ain't no competition. You know, so how good are you without competition? Yeah, 100%. I love competition. And, and so WCW, I mean, they made us work our ass off to try to get the number one. And then – 
it's one thing when you get to number one, but you got to stay there. So we're still in a dogfight until they shut them down. So I just think uh, that was still the last days of the wild, wild west. You know, I love has something to do like, you know, introducing a restrictor plate. <laughs> you know, guys, guys, guys start to be a little bit more micromanaged. Yeah. Things had to uh, get a little bit more of a friendly tone. A lot more corporate sponsors coming in. And, you know, I'll never forget when I – I had to leave in uh, 2000 to get uh, my C3-4 fused up because I had a, uh, some neck injuries. And when I came back, that's kind of when every now and then they, they start handing you something like this, and this is what you were going to say. Hey, man, before that, what I was going to say was, if, if, if you're going to talk some trash to me, I'm going to listen you talk that trash, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to answer everything you just said. And, and, and we're tearing each other down, but we're building each other right. up. And we, we're working together, right? right? We're trying to sell tickets. It's mm-hmm. business. Yeah. And I don't work from memory. I work from what I feel in my heart, my gut, and then, then put it together with my brain. Who was giving you that? Like when you came back and, you, and, and they were trying to script what you say, who is hey, that? Writers, you know. Just like with, with uh, WWE? Yeah. Okay, so they started trying to write and, and what does it what does it look like when Steve Austin doesn't like what you're trying to make him say what what do you say well just it's it's hard for to me it's hard for someone to try to write uh you, you weren't in South Texas you weren't hauling hay you know you didn't you know have a hard time making it and everything you know you didn't have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder so I, I i don't know if you can achieve that the attitude of the mindset or you know hell after seven and a half years of paying my dues finally i'd become an overnight sensation well you weren't there them seven and a half years when i was living on potatoes piddling with my pocket knife in a hotel room <laughs> you know struggling to put some damn car in my uh, some some gas in my car so i uh, it's i don't think you could really encapsulate you know what I would say, or you know, you you might know who I was by looking at me, but if you ain't been in the grind with me, it's, I I think it's hard for me for for anybody to write for me, and it's hard for me to feel what you may write for me. Would you just say I'm not saying that? Well, yeah, you know, I work with the system. I'll never forget one time we was at a building, and uh, someone came and found me, and I was working a program with Vince, and he said, uh, "Hey, Vince wants to go uh, the promo with you," and I said, "All right," and. uh I remember we was in this little bitty room, smaller than this table, half the size of this table. <laughs> a lot of things are smaller than this table. <laughs> I mean, but but me and Vince, and, yeah. and I'm sitting there, oh, okay, I'd come back from a neck injury, like, okay, Vince, I'm going to rip you to shreds. And, <laughs> and, and, and man, he got mad at me. He goes, damn it, Steve, give me your A promo. I said, hey, man, I'm going to give you my A promo out there. Yeah. I'm not a rehearsal guy. Right. I said, you know, so – it, it, it just I'll, I'll read you bullet points I'm gonna get a couple of them in there yeah. and then we're gonna fly that's pretty awesome so you've been you said you retired in 2003 you had a lot of time to think about it what do you miss these days I don't miss anything because I've been away from it long enough right. but when I had to uh man I had to pull a plug on myself and when, when I got dropped on my head I bruised my spinal cord and there's a lot of, a lot of neurological issues that I still deal with and uh it just got to a point where I was just I was running hard on a personal level, and then I would beat to shreds because I wasn't taking no time off. And you just it's it's a hard life. Yeah. And I tell people these days, hell, if I if I'd been using some modern training techniques or been drinking protein powder rather than whiskey and beer, <laughs> you know, I, I, like I said, but I was I, I was in, I was a pro wrestler, man. I, that that's that's all I wanted to be, and I was at a high level. And uh, I'll never forget when I, when I pulled a plug on myself, uh, getting out of the business, it was a hard transition for me. And I've seen a lot of guys, 
get strung out on pain pills. A lot of guys get in IRS trouble or whatever. And I and I, I'm I'm no smarter than a lot of the guys. When I got out, I didn't really have an exit strategy, mm. and because. I had such a hard time dealing with the fact that I was out of the business because you know, I'd gotten pile drived on, on my head. And for 60 seconds, I was a transit quadriplegic. And when you're laying there in the middle of a ring in front of 20,000 people live on a pay-per-view and you can't move, mm. it scared the shit out of you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was able to finally crawl. There's footage on TV. It was a, it was a, rough, it was a rough day at the office. I went around all the damn United States seeing all these different doctors and I uh, finally found a, a doctor, one of the leading researchers about you know, quadriplegia, Joseph Torg in Philadelphia. And uh, he didn't know the business you know, was at work. And uh, I said, hey, doc, I, I said, I ain't got to take a pile driver every night. He goes, oh, you can control what you do out there? I said, yeah, to a degree, I, I can control everything. So he cleared me to get back in the ring. Anyway, so I, I made it another couple of years, and I got fused up. I had to ride off in the sunset. But uh, dealing with that, walking away, Retirement always sounds like the R word. Yeah. Always sounds like the holy grail. You work your ass off because that's what we're here to do. And then you enjoy retirement. Hell, I retired when I was 38, man. You know how much money I left on the table? I mean, right. not just about the money. It's about the good times, being with the boys, traveling down the road, being in front of a crowd, getting that adrenaline rush. That's what I lived and breathed. And so I didn't handle it well. And for about three years, I drank. I hunted and I fished and just did a lot of stupid stuff. And one morning I woke up and uh, I went in the bathroom and I just looked at myself in the mirror. It's a true story. And I, and I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking to myself, dude, the things you're doing are not conducive to living a long life. You need to slow your ass down and you need to use, I didn't have any designs on being a movie star or nothing like that, but I was driving a forklift before I got into wrestling business and uh, as much fun as that was, and I loved it, after being on top of the world in the wrestling business, I didn't want to drive a forklift again. I said, you better get your ass down there to Los Angeles and try to do something in the entertainment business and uh, do that. And so, hell, I packed up and moved in with Diamond Dallas Page down there in, uh, uh, wow. in, uh, in Los Angeles. Wasted about a year out there, still you know, mm -hmm. searching for the bottom of a lot of bottles. Yep. And we found some people and started making some, uh, I call them low-budget movies. Someone with, with, a, with a big ego would, would call them independents. Yeah. Hey, low budget. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, man, I, I got a chance to host a, a reality series called Tough Enough for WWE. They re, re reinvented it on USA Network. And I said, hey, man, we want you to uh, host this show. And I said, I love it because when I first retired, I was so uh, upset that I had to leave the business that I loved. I had to be completely away from it. I couldn't even watch it. I didn't want nothing to do with it. If I can't be the main guy, I don't want to be any guy anywhere around. Right. All those years later, in, in 2000, I think it was 2009 or 2011, when they did uh, Tough Enough, I had been away long enough. The wounds had healed, and I wanted to be closer to the business. I didn't want to be taking bumps, but I wanted to help people learn to trade. So that put me uh, back in touch with the business in a position that I really loved. And it, it, after one season, they yanked it, and it did, did good numbers. But that, 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 that helped me out a whole lot. And then when I found that, uh, a couple other people contacted me, and uh, the last show I did was Broken Skull Challenge. Right. And some rocket scientists canceled that some bitch, and I still ain't figured that one out <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I found out that I really enjoyed, uh, and, and through my podcast, talking to people, 
and uh, shooting the breeze on the fly. Does Vince I, ever call, or has he ever called over the last fifteen years for with ideas of how to incorporate you back into the system? Maybe not as you know taking bumps as you say, but being a part of the program. No, I mean, yeah, yes and no. But yeah. I, I said, you know, I kind of wanted to do my own thing for a while. I, I, here, here's a classic, classic example. It's a true story. And I was over at, uh, we used to do a Stone Cold podcast, and I was uh, in Denver, Colorado. And I said, hey, man, uh, I want to see if you wanted to open the show. And I said, sure, man, I'll open Monday Night Raw. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, we got four things we want you to say. And they hand me that piece of paper. <laughs> God. And I was like, this is what you want me to say? You bring me back after I don't know how many years in front of 20,000 and a couple million out there in TV land? I was like, all right. So I went out there and said it, but it was like, I can't work off paper. And I I really think that the wrestling business, uh, guys like me, are good to have around uh, in a special occasion or whatever to uh, talk to people about the fine details of what we call in the business getting over, Mm -hmm. that secret to becoming – hot as a heel or hot as a baby into a money drawing position there there's there's knowledge i have or hulk has or flair has uh but in the system man it's for the young cats they need all the television time they can get they ain't gonna gonna monetize you know me by just bringing me out to a house show here or there so they they gotta they gotta put the money you know i think it's kind of with you you like developing drivers so i like to watch the, the talent develop and i had my time and i want them to have their time so you're following along with what's going on now currently i try to i dvr both shows but i i don't watch a whole lot of television to begin with yeah you know, I'm a big football fan and UFC fan, and and I, I DVR both shows because if someone says, uh, "Hey man, check us out," or someone wants to ask me something uh, to get my opinion on it, right. well, I've got it dialed up, so then I watch it. Hey, I got a question with with uh, with you sort of taking on this role of trying to help some of these younger wrestlers. Do you try to give them advice as far as planning their end or their exit already? Because it sounds like to me that you. Hadn't even thought about it. Injury sort of took you down that road, maybe if you weren't ready. Um, is that something you try to help people understand and maybe prepare for better? Oh, absolutely. Because and then you, what do you tell them? Well, just giving a platform right right now, I just say, hey, man, if you're trying to do anything, you know, always keep your, you know, your, your loyalty and your main job is with WWE. But if you've got some feelers out there and you're trying to network other things, you know, based on the fact that you've got a high Q rating or a lot of television exposure and you can get your, get your hands into different things, do it. Do it. But, you know, right now, this is your bread and butter, but start planting those seeds right now. So when you spin out of this, you come out with momentum. Like I said, I sidetracked my – I'm just completely honest. I sidetracked myself three years of nothing and then came out to L.A. You know, had I said, hey, I'm going to go do this. You know, yeah. I, I could have planned it a lot better. I would mm. uh, I would compare uh, the history of wrestling as far as superstars with another popular show that's long running, and that's Saturday Night Live. Chevy Chase, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, you got Ric Flair, the superstars that have sort of carried that show through the decades. Who is the superstar in today's climate? Who is the next Stone Cold? Who is the next guy that's going to be the household name? Man, it's a tough question to answer right now. Do you see those guys in this current climate? If, 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 uh, key thing, uh, when, when I, when I got hot, I pushed the envelope and I was saying words you could still say on television. I wasn't dropping F bombs. I, I knew what I could get away with. 
the, the deal was I wasn't afraid to push the envelope. I wasn't afraid to go out on a limb. So I did, and I knew I had to, and it was in me. It was nothing I, I had to, hey, this is a crazy idea. I go. When you turn me up to 11, that's me. And like I said, man, growing up in South Texas, just talking that trash. So to answer your question, you know, uh, I, I had no restrictor plate on me. You know, like the guys today do. Yeah, Yeah, I just could. Like I said, it's a it's it's a way more friendly setting, and there's a lot more control on television than went back in the day. I mean, because you know, we could do the. Hey, I went to Brian Pillman's house one time. He had a busted leg from wrecking his Humvee, and I I broke in his house with a baseball bat, and he pulled a gun on me Mm. on Monday Night Raw, and then shots were fired. And I don't think the network that rehearsed it all. Oh hell no! I beat the hell out of two guys in his driveway, and when that gun went, you know, there, there were reports that shots were fired. There was a call from the network, and there was some explaining to be done. But we had done it, and right. you know, hey, then we apologize. <laughs> my point is, I, I don't know that anybody can push that envelope no. as hard as we did, yeah. and I really think that's that's what it is. And again, I go to. It's like the people that, that that love you. There's something about you and, and you driving or and now you're doing your broadcasting that just people love you. You were real and you affected their emotions and they got behind you. And that's the same thing in our business. But yeah. you got to do something to to resonate with those people and to get that kind of uh, relationship. Anything you do, it's all about relationships. Even though you're you're an entertainer, you have a relationship with those fans and those fans got to live vicariously. I've talked to so many people through those all the stuff that Stone Cold Steve Austin was doing, and they might have been in a bad bad way or had some problems going against them or whatever. And they turn on that TV, and it, you, when you're in the entertainment business, if you can make somebody forget about their problems for about two hours, and put a smile on their face, and they get that adrenaline going, that's a good thing. Yeah. And so I, I just think it'll, it'll it'll take someone to just to be able to capture that audience again. I ain't saying you got to go crazy. Yeah. Just got to turn them loose a little bit. There's a as a Redskins fan. There's a play or a game that's that's on the top of the list for me. Do you have a moment in your career, or even maybe not in your career, maybe it's in someone else's career that you that you think is the most memorable moment for you, your favorite moment, your favorite match? Well, yeah, my favorite. I, I loved working with uh, the Rock and, and WrestleMania 17 was a hell of a ride. But that WrestleMania, and I love working with Vince because the, the Vince feud transcended yeah. wrestling for two years. That was water cooler talk. I don't care what you did at lunch. You met and you 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 asked, "Hey man, you you see what Stone Cold and Vince did last night?" And Vince was an awesome opponent because he he feels this stuff as much as I do. And that guy, he's an animal. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life, and I love the guy. But to answer your question, that match in WrestleMania 13. I knew we had those people from Jump Street. I dived on him, started whipping his ass, and then uh, we go into a barricade. I start bleeding like a stuck pig, and finally, after a couple of attempts, he turns me over that sharpshooter, and I'm <laughs> laying there, and I'm in a push-up position, and I am trying to escape. And we loved working Chicago, Rosemount Horizon, because first of all, the fans are terrific, and the acoustics in that building, the, the acoustics in that building, that's a wooden ceiling. So it's like when you when, when they yell, it's kind of like hitting the gas pedal. You get an immediate response. Damn. Everything you do in that ring is, is driven by a response. Mm-hmm. And so, man, those people are just quick. And so we had that crowd, hook, line, and sinker, and I was going to pass out in the pool of blood. Got, in the finish, got the finish earlier from Vince. The pool of blood was not planned. <laughs> 
<laughs> until later by, by two individuals, but there was a no color policy in effect. And I was laying there bleeding like a stuck pig. And I'll never forget to answer your question. That moment was finishing that match, executing uh, the double turn and laying there. Man, I bled like a stuck pig. Yeah. I was in a puddle of blood. It, it, what, you never want to hit something that's gory, but it was it was an extended period of time. Laying there, passed out while him and Shamrock were going to take care of business, and I had to just perform my ass off, work my ass off. So did Brett, and he really brought it that match. Laying there in that pool of blood with my eyes closed because that was that was all I had to do until both those guys got out of the ring, and then I'd get up. And I want it was my idea to stun the referee because. I said, I still got to just – if someone's going to try to help me, I, I'm not just going to start hugging on him and thank you for helping me up. I'm still a rattlesnake <laughs> laying in that pool of blood. Most satisfying moment in, in, in my Ooh, entire wrestling that's career. That's awesome. Yeah, hey, I got a question. Uh, who was the best – who did you enjoy wrestling with and performing with the most in the, in the lens of you trusted them? Because I've realized with the interviews with, uh, that I've seen with other wrestlers that – you have your life in their hands and vice versa. Okay, so not who was the best performer for the crowd, but who was the best to wrestle with in that you, you could trust them and y'all could put on a show and protect each other? There, there's, a, there's a lot of guys like that, and, and you, you hit the nail right on the head. I, I, I recently was in a ring, and we was hitting the ropes pretty damn hard, and the people standing around were like, holy shit, I didn't, I didn't know you guys are moving that fast or the things happened in that ring so violently. I said – yeah, man, it ain't ballet. I loved working with Bret Hart. Uh, there was so much trust and respect, and and like I said, the high profile matches I've had with Rock, Undertaker, Triple H. I mean, the the, the mankind. The, the list could be a, a mile long, but if I got to give you one one guy, you know, Bret to hit man Hart. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he was just awesome, and there were there were, there was a trust and respect there from day one, and he saw me coming up, and you know. He had taken a year off to get a – not not a year, but some time off to get a knee cleaned up. And he picked me as his opponent to come back uh, in, in, in – uh, I think it was in the Garden uh, for a Survivor Series match. And that helped me before, you know, we would end up feuding, uh, what, a year later. So, Bret Hart. Bret Hart. He talked about uh, laying in that pool of blood. And I, when I was a boy and uh, would watch um, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and all those guys wrestle, and, man, they bled every – they bled on a Monday – regular show and I always thought as a boy like how does that process like how do you get so comfortable with man I'm cutting tonight and do they is I mean obviously that might be pre-planned they know that that's going to happen how, how do you get yourself mentally there to do that repeatedly time and time and time again because for me that was probably the most it's obviously visually shocking you know, when you're watching a match and there's just blood everywhere, and those guys, especially back in those days, were just bleeding hard, yeah, covered. And you remember that, right? Yes. And and uh, as a wrestler, like somebody, when you're when do you remember the first time you you bled? Oh man! But but Don't, to answer your question, I mean to go back to what you're saying, yeah, it's the exclamation point right. on a on a great feud, and it's like, hey man, it turned into a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you, I went to uh, wrestling school. I, I was in there for about five months, one day a week. There was 25 kids in class. We had one ring, so ring time is pretty limited. Yeah. Okay, so you learn a little bit of chain wrestling. You learn how to take a bump. Uh, you, you just learn how to fall and protect yourself. And part of the, the, the 101 and the 201 class ain't, well, here's how you get color. No one teaches you that. That's what it's that. called, get yeah, color. Get color. 
a little juice. <laughs> all, of sudden, all of a sudden, man, we was in we was in that, we was in Dallas, and there was gonna be a match. Eric Emery was booking. I think it was about no, the first time it was in Tennessee. Anyway, uh, I was in a locker room, and I, I think it was Jerry Lawler or somebody. I said, or it might have been Chris Adams. I said, "Hey, man," and someone told him we was gonna go out there in like a big battle roll type thing and and bleed. And as as a new guy in the business, I hadn't even been in a year, and now all of a sudden somebody wants me to bleed. Well, okay, what's the process? <laughs> So I, I asked one of the guys, I said, man, how do you make a blade? And the guy showed me his technique. And then, you know, you know, like those old school razors? Yeah. The old ones. Right. You know, double-sided. You know, yeah, double-sided. Yeah. Clip that thing in the middle and then, you know, get some corners and, and make a small thing, push it through a piece of tape, you know, so you got a pull tab and, you know, put it on your wrist. Some oh guys are carrying their mouth, uh, some guys in their waistband, but... Me, if it was a big, Correct. if it was a big pay per view, man, you know, I, I got plan A, I got plan B, and I got plan C. So I'm, I'm out there with, with, with three options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dang. And so, you know, you, it's a very interesting feeling when you first push that that blade into your head because there's like a crackle of that skin, Ugh. and then you then you're gonna drag just a little bit. Oh man! And oh. at first, you know, you're kind of like, man, this is, it's like a rite of passage, though. Right. You're expected to do it because you grew up seeing it, and all of a sudden now you get a chance to do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like in the '90s, so you know, trading blood with a lot of people and some of these guys, you know. Were, <laughs> For party yeah, animals, right. it's like, man, you think th those guys got to be the I, dumbest people in the world. <laughs> and like the guy, you know, the I guy that always that. bite on the open cut yeah. and then spit the blood out. Yes. I was oh. like, holy <laughs> I, I would imagine you're right. There's some people that I would just be like, I don't want to color juice with you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> there were those guys, those, yeah. those guys that were like really out there. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is, man, when you get out on that mat, you know, some of those outdoor shows, that, that mat is so hot. Yeah. Uh, on those, like we did some rodeo. I know you that. Bakersfield, Bakersfield, California. Yeah. You've been there. So it's, it's so hot that the mat's about 120 degrees. It's hard to lay there just for a three count. Man, guys are kicking out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but when you get in some of those arenas, like the Sportatorium in Dallas, that, that, that building was so, the, the wrestling atmosphere was so thick here. And, uh, you know, when you know the Carolinas, I mean, the wrestling is hot here, yeah. especially mm -hmm. Ric Flair territory, uh, Four Horsemen. Uh, Crockett's, so uh, that that but that mat just like this, you know, you got you know metal construction, some two by twelves, a little bit of a mat about like that, and you got the tarp. But on top of that tarp, man, guys been walking around in the dressing room. I mean, you drink your coffee, maybe you got to take care of business, or you're at the urinal, you're taking care of business, and all of a sudden you walk into the ring. So it it smells like stale beer, popcorn, piss, sweat. And then you got blood on top of it. It's oh like the, oh, it's any night of the week, you get staph infection. It's got to be one of the most unsanitary right. places to, to roll around with another guy <laughs> <laughs> and get sweated on or bleeded on. God, oh, <laughs> I just invented bleeded. Yeah, yeah. bleeded. Like bleeded. Am, Put it in the I'm, dictionary. I'm so glad you answered that for me because I, I think that was probably the number one question on my list ever since I've been a little boy about wrestling as to how that process goes for somebody, and you answered it perfectly. You talked about mankind. This is a guy from our vantage point that sacrificed himself more than anybody. Were, were, were all wrestlers like that, or was he just someone special? I think I think he knew that was going to be his uh, – He had to. 
I, I don't think he had to. I, I don't think Mick's, Mick. Well, Mick gets a lot of credit because he's, he's one of my best friends in the business, and we travel right. together. We're two of the cheapest guys in the history of the business <laughs> as far as saving our money, staying at you know shed box hotels, stuff like that. Uh, I don't think. I think he did it because he he knew that he wasn't going to be a certainly wasn't going to be a high flyer, a mat technician, and I, I think he to a point enjoyed the pain. Mm. And I'll never forget, man. That that floor in Dallas, Texas, was that hardwood floor. It, it's probably harder than any concrete I've walked on. And I'll never forget from my early days when when he he got into business just a, a couple years before I did. And I was out there in a the crowd, uh, drinking beer with my football playing buddies, and we was out there drinking beer, throwing stuff at wrestlers. And he'd drop that elbow from apron onto that floor, and or or get suplexed out on that seam, man, and just just. You you know that when uh, Undertaker threw him off that cage in that off the, yeah. into that the hell in the cell in that announce desk, I think he did it because it was a means to an end and it was a style that worked for him and and so a lot of people didn't think Mick Foley's one of the smartest guys in the business. That's what they said. And that, I think that was his calling card to answer your question. That's awesome. Hey, I, I, when did the beer the beer bashing start? And and because that became so iconic, just the imagery of that, it, it was part of your identity in a big way. Uh, when did that start, and and how did you keep that going? Was it even that hard to? I can't remember uh, exactly when we started it, and I didn't invent it. Sandman was doing his version of it in ECW, and and when I did it, I wasn't saying, "Hey, the Sandman did this. I'm going to copy it." I just it, it organically happened. I don't know if I grabbed a couple of beers out of the audience, or I just figured, "Hey, man, you <laughs> like to drink beer so much, <laughs> you know?" Because we, we'd have that, that cooler full of beer underneath that yeah. uh, that announce table, or uh, Mark Eaton used to throw me those beers. But you know, Sandman would crush them off his head. I would just bang, clack them together like that, and you know, people would say, "Man, Steve always got mad at you because you wasted all that beer." And I say, "Like they don't understand. You ain't in show business. You don't get it." Half goes in, that's for me. Half goes <laughs> on, that's for everybody else. It's a win-win situation. Yeah. You got to have some showmanship to it. What if I'd have clacked two beers together and just sipped them? I <laughs> 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 wouldn't have been worth the flying yeah. Plus, Plus, you wouldn't have had the beer on the Petri dish. It was called the mat that yeah. you... Uh, that you uh, I would that, kind of sanitize yeah, it. Yeah, you yeah, can. That. I, told, I always tell people, Dale, by, by the time I, I got finished... I was so beat to shreds, I told people, hell, I was drinking for a living and wrestling on the side. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still drink beer? Yeah, I got into the beer business. I drank light beer for, hell, 30, however many years it's been. And I finally started, all this craft beer stuff started springing up. And I said, oh, man, let me give this stuff a try. Because back then, he was kind of considered a snob if you wasn't drinking the regular beer that everybody else was. And hell, you know, back in the day, we were drinking Schaefer Light. Hell, that's all he could afford. So I started drinking the pale L's. It was pretty good. And I tried my first IPA. It was a little too much. And I went back to the pale L. <laughs> and I said, hey, man, I miss that, 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 that hop on that IPA. So I really got into the IPAs. And I teamed up with El Segundo Brewing Company to get in the beer market. So I have Broken Skull uh, IPA. It's a 6.7% alcohol, uh, 40 IBUs, and that, that beer is handcrafted by myself and the owner, Rob Croxall, to my specifications. And I think it's one of the best. I'm very partial, but that built was built for me. It's, it's one of the best IPAs in, in, uh, in America. And so I'm very proud of that beer. Well, what's coming next for Stone Cold? You know, hopefully we do a good job on this show. 
and uh, we got seven to start off with. And uh, do you know who all your guests are? You don't have to give them away if you don't want to, but you got some. You got some pretty cool. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, I, I, I have some really, really cool guests, and, and you're one of them. I and I look at it like this. I mean, either we're going to get to do seven of them or we'll do 28 of them or 56. <laughs> and, and, but we got seven, and I'm looking forward to them, Aaron, and uh, hopefully they do well. I, I love talking to people. I love talking with you guys, and, and it gives me a chance to get back out on the road, do cool stuff that I wouldn't get a chance to do otherwise. And I'm probably going to spring back up and, and kick my podcast uh, back into gear. I had to take care of a few things. I took myself off the air for a while. I uh, got everything straightened out, so I'll make a return to that. And I uh, continue my ventures in, in the beer business, the pocket knife still business. Still hunting? Oh, I'm still hunting. Oh, man, different. And, and I enjoy my, my – I'm, I'm – I'm in business with Kawasaki Motorsports as a brand ambassador, and I, I love doing that. That's one of the best things I got. Uh, hunting has been really good because do we still got time? Yeah. Okay, so back back when I had the ranch in Texas, we had that place for 10 years. And, you know, in South Texas, everybody's high fence because everybody's trying to grow big-ass deer. Right. Okay, and you don't want your neighbors right. shooting your deer. Okay, well, we did that for 10 years, and we had some monster deer. And we was feeding protein 24-7 on top of all the protein they already got to eat. And so we were raising those deers, culling, and, and you know, rarely shooting trophies because we're, we're growing. We're looking long-term. We're playing a long game, like you like That's to right. say. And uh, it got to be such a process. We had an awesome setup out there. I had a, uh, a double-wide hooked to a triple-wide with this 2,000-square-foot <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, man cave. Five-wide. You talk about super redneck, but it, it, it was cool. And over uh, at the barn uh, was our, uh, our cooler. But during the cold process, man, you're taking out your undesirables. You got to control the population yeah, because sure. they're they're in two th- they're sure. in a two thousand acre you know rectangle, and all the culling, all the does, you got to do that. And man, after doing that for ten years, what I love now. Uh, you're not hunting over bait in Nevada. That's where I hunt now. I can go anywhere in the United States and hunt. Right. I get a lot of invites, but I, I'm a hermit, and I just like to stay in my own territory. My brother-in-law is probably the best guy in Nevada and knows the entire state like the back of his hand. It's uncanny. So you're out there, free range. Uh, I drew my first tag this year for mule deer. Uh, my previous years, I'd bought landowner tags. Uh, I had a landowner antelope tag this year and was successful. Uh, my first year out there, I shot a big-ass 175 mule deer. Nice. And I was just – I was like, hey, man, it happened on the first day. Wow. I said, hey, man, it's going to be pretty easy. <laughs> this past season, first day out there, we saw a buck. It was probably about a 150 buck. And, I, man, I wasn't even going to give him the time of day. I said, no, man, I'll pass. we got four more days to do this. If you see something out there that's yeah. like that, that's in that ballpark, you better take him. And you, you don't want to take a young buck for no sure. reason because you don't do that. And so I got smoked. And so that was a, a landowner tag over there cost $4,000. Mm. I just got a $4,000 lesson in, in yeah. how, to, how not to get some meat in the freezer. Yeah. And, 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 and when, I, when I talk about deer hunting, because it's something that I love and I grew up doing, we eat every single thing we take. And Absolutely. what we can't eat ourselves, we donate to food banks. And the, the good thing about uh, hunting in Nevada is it, it, I'm just taking one animal. I'm taking one deer and one antelope. And my wife is a vegetarian. First vegetarian I ever met in my life. <laughs> she has him. We used to go down to South Texas, 
and try to go through. We'd go through the McDonald's, order a Mac veggie burger. Because <laughs> they got them in L.A. Look down in South Texas, like, what in the hell are you talking about? Do you just not want us to put the meat in there? <laughs> right. Just, yeah, yeah, like an air burger. Lettuce and bread. <laughs> air burger. <laughs> so, you know, I get two deer to eat. And, and realistically, I mean, how much more can you eat? Yeah, I eat a lot a of chicken breast stuff like that. So. I got a place in uh, Ohio and uh, bow hunting only. Yeah. And, uh, Good boy, for you. We love it. And you're, you're welcome to come anytime. Um, we do the same thing. We, we eat what we, what we kill and, and donate what we don't keep. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. I've been, I've had that place. We've owned it. Me and my, a friend of mine for probably five years. I got one buck off of it so far. You just out there just enjoy. I enjoy the managing and, yep. uh, you know, culling and, and getting things where you want them and growing the population and seeing the same deer every year and watching them grow and do and a lot of fun learning about just trying, you know, firing up your food plots and moving, moving things around and, how that all works is pretty interesting. So, and Ohio uh, has good deer. They do. They have real yeah. good deer. Yeah. Have you ever heard uh, the you know that the hole in the horn buck? No. That's a famous buck from Ohio. I guess maybe someone shot a hole in it, and one of his horns with the twenty two, but but it was found dead on the side of a railroad track yeah. or the road. So he was it was no no person killed him. He died of whatever causes. But research the hole in the horn buck because if I'm not mistaken, that is an Ohio buck. Nice. So thank you, Steve, for coming today, man. You got your show. Straight up Steve Austin on the USA Channel. So be on the lookout for that, fans. Uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. Been a fan all my life. Uh, never thought I'd have a chance to sit here and talk to you, especially hear some of these great stories. Uh, we, we got a little inside scoop, and it was great. We're going to hang out the rest of the day filming your show. And uh, thanks again for coming on. And, uh, you know, on that note, if you can edit this in or if it doesn't make it, it's fine. But I'll tell you how we come up with the name of the show. We decided we was going to do this show on the USA Network. Yeah. And so, man – Anytime you come up with something, you got to come up with a name for it, right? Got yeah. the Dale Jr. download. <laughs> so, what are we going to call this show with Steve Austin? And I said, man, we had a couple of ideas. I said, man, I said, uh, what about what about straight up shoot? And like like in the wrestling business, like a, like a shoot, I mean, is, is it real? Mm-hmm. Like like instead of saying, if you tell me something, uh, and, and I don't believe if it's real or not, I'm, instead of saying, really? I'll, I'll go shoot, <laughs> and if I'm really perplexed, I go, "Come on, man! You're telling me something really incredulous." Straight up shoot. So we just took the shoot out, and it's I, I say straight up to people all the time. If, if someone's filling me with a story, I got to find out if it's real or not. I come on, man, straight up. Yes. And people, we, we realize, and I say that so much. Let's call that the show, and that's how the name Straight Up Steve Austin was born. Awesome. And we will see how many episodes of this illustrious show we get by how many people tune in to see it. But it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm visiting with some really high profile or some really cool people and doing some really fun things, as you will find out later today. You're traveling and you're putting in the work, so I think it's going to succeed. Plus, you got a huge production, a lot of hardworking people out there. I've been a first, seen it firsthand, so I think you're going to have a great run, buddy. Hey, man, your, your best friend is Edit Bay. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. There he is, Matthew Dillner. All right, we'll see you guys later. So I you know, did my own personal genealogy. That's I had, right. I actually helped, had some uh, – I got so far down the line, I had an um, expert help me uh, sort of affirm everything that I learned on Ancestry.com. Mm. It was all true. I say that because I have become a real believer in, in Ancestry. Mm-hmm. And they now have an ancestry DNA kit. The great thing about that is, is it sort of maps out all of the journey that your family may have taken from wherever they're from. Mine from Germany to Philadelphia, then down to Salisbury, North Carolina. Why did they move there? When did they move? You know, I can see this in a 3D map 
when I take that Ancestry DNA. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started. Mine started in Germany. Mm-hmm. They use precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. And to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so that your ancestors become more than just a name. And it's easy to do. Within days, they'll mail you a Ancestry DNA kit, which includes full instructions and a saliva collection tube. You mail it back. It's very simple. You spit the tube, wrap it back up, send it back to them. It goes to their lab, and the journey begins. Go to Ancestry.com slash Junior today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash Junior for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash Junior. All right, this week on the Valvoline DIY question of the week. Dale Jr., this is a good question. Who taught you how to drive? Not race cars, just anything. How to drive, when, what, 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 what happened? Who was it? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> yeah. did, did you do better than I did just delivering that question? Well, I mean, I have to... Dad probably would be the one that would uh, be at the top of that list. Believe it or not, Kelly, my sister Kelly. Of so, course. Right. You know, I don't know that she was she was intentionally doing it at the time, but when uh when we were when she was getting ready to get her license, I was fourteen, she was turning sixteen. Dad got us a Volkswagen, an old <laughs> stick shift Volkswagen, and it was dad uh, dad thought, man, this would be a great way for you know, Kelly to learn how to drive a stick. Kelly wanted to drive a stick. Um Dad wanted her to know how to drive a stick, so he got us this old Volkswagen and would just encourage us to drive it around on the property. Mm-hmm. And it was 300 acres of dirt roads, and Kelly and I would hop in this car, and she would just go motoring around the the property. And um, for, whatever, for whatever reason, it doesn't sound like a ton of fun now to just aimlessly roam the property, but because uh, we didn't have a radio and, 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 and no cell phones and stuff like that, so you just kind of were just teetering around literally driving <laughs> driving around to learn how to drive yeah yes. and she she uh we oh she drove it into trees and ditches and out just goofing off and i would we oh i'd get mad i'm getting out she spun it into a tree one time i'm like i'm done i'm walking back and it was like you know half a mile i'm like i ain't riding with you no more and i tried to open the door and the damn running board was crushed into the door and it couldn't get out she's <laughs> laughing but so riding with her and and watching her i think that taught me uh you know a lot about driving especially using a stick shift and a clutch and all that because it's i mean it's really intimidating i think the first time you try to do it when you're 15 years old and so um and and if you're by yourself i mean i know that you were with your sister but my gosh i mean he wasn't with you no (laughs) the only and and i remember too though even before that we would get um, we, we, you know, we drove this 15 passenger, well, not a 15 passenger. We drove a custom van, but it was a 15 passenger van, but customized for us, uh, by comfort coach, which was a popular van customizing line at the time. All, a lot of the teams had them where, whereas today race car drivers have like giant motor coaches, all of them have them and the crew chiefs have them. Everybody had a van, yeah. a comfort coach van back then. And we drove that to every race pretty much. Didn't fly to any races. Drive, driving to Dover, Pocono, all these places. And when we would get within, you know, when we our the road we lived on was a couple miles long. And as soon as we got near there, me and Kelly would start to uh, lobby to get ourselves on Dad's lap so we could drive the 
you know, drive the rest of the way to the house. And so um, that was, pro- you know, that's more about, you know, getting your hands on the wheel, putting them in the right place, him telling you attending to and all that and keeping your hands where they need to be and not running off the road and paying attention to the side of the road. Uh, so there was a lot of that going on when I was probably 12, 13, 14 years old. And then I got my permit. I would drive sometimes with Teresa in the car. If we were going somewhere, she might let me drive, uh, which was pretty brave on her part. Um, and I think one time we were driving, and, and I drove, and I dipped a tire off the road. Everything was fine. But she went back, and Dad said, hey, how did he do driving? She said, everything's fine. He, run, he dropped the tire one time, ran off the road once. <laughs> well, how the hell how do you run off the road you know and so the next time me and him are in the truck i think we're leaving the shop leaving his farm driving back to the house which uh at the time was on the lake so we had a 15 minute drive and he's the whole time here's how you run off here if you run off the road this is how you take it back on you go real slow you don't jerk it you jerk it this is what happens and he obviously you know he's trying to show me how you can spin a car out if you jerk it back up on the road if you drop a tire and you yank it and then how to do it real calm and natural and slow and take your time. And that was another lesson of how to drive. I, I would put that in that box. Maybe uh, driving off the road was more comfortable for you, considering you learned on a Volkswagen and dirt roads. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I, I just, how could he drive off the road? I just think All I, that stuff I gave him and told him to do on his own yeah. without being there. Oh, he was just blown away that, uh, you, that you could even that do you it. could drop a tire off the highway. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, when you're 15 and you got your permit, you're you're all over the place. Tell him pass you the grass, Dad. You yeah. ever heard of it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that that was me. I mean, I I can't think of any other uh, scenarios where I was where where I would say you know I was getting taught how to drive on the highway. You know, it just occurred to me, uh, parents. I mean, you know, because it's going to happen for us one day. How how brave do you got to be to get into the car? I mean, you got to teach your kids how to drive, but t- to ride shotgun with your kids when they're riding for the first time. That is got to be terrifying, to be honest with you. I mean, no doubt. I mean, I remember when I was driving on an interstate for the first time, and my whole family was in the car with me. That was terrible. It was a, it was a stick shift. I mean, good grief! I could have got us killed. It was terrible. But anyways, listen. Good question. This is the Valvoline DIY question of the week from high mileage rides that need that thick anti wear film to newer engines that have carbon buildup. Head over to Valvoline.com/dale to find the product spec for your engine. Hey everybody, Ask Junior, presented by Nationwide, cranking up again on YouTube. What's up? At Dirty Moo Media. Uh, Leah, they got some great questions pouring in. Yeah, we have a lot of questions, um, obviously uh, revolving around the fight topic. Yep. That's kind of going on. So Mandy <laughs> wrote in, she wants to know, I don't ever recall seeing you in a post-race fight. Did it ever happen? If so, when, where, and who? I don't know. Do you <laughs> Mike's remember? laughing. Why are you laughing, Mike? <laughs> I was, I was going to make a joke because he got his ass kicked every time, but that's not true. He actually didn't fight. I was just joking. Oh. I was going to joke. Is no, that no. a joke? That, that's not that, a joke. That, it was kind that's of a real <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> um, you would never get in a fight. You never got in a fight. Mm-hmm. I remember some uh, dust ups. I remember some markings. Chip- chirping. Yeah, yeah. Chirping. Chirpings. Chirping. You and Denny did one time. Yeah. Did we? Yeah, after the uh, shootout. Yeah. You wrecked him. That happened. I wrecked Denny? Yeah. Don't you remember? No. Yeah. You, you always forget when you wreck people, but you never forget when you get wrecked. Oh man, um, yeah, I don't, I, uh, <laughs> I really like. I'm thinking back, street stock days, late model days. I never gotten a punching match uh, with anybody. 
But didn't you have like the cops or something coming after you after a late model race? What is that story? Uh, was that a fight? Yeah, that. But no, it wasn't a fight. That was that was um, that was at Hickory, and we were running a late model race, and they said, uh, geez, "This is a long conversation. It's a long, long story." But Cliff, it wasn't a Cliff fight. Version. Wasn't a fight. Uh, we just sort of got um, in a little trouble. <laughs> You ought to leave it at that, so we can. Uh, we need to use that, and yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. We'll, leave, a, we'll tell that story another day. We got a little more time, but <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't ever been in a physical altercation that I can remember. Yeah, at the racetrack. Right. Yeah, he's right. Ra- yeah, I mean, you're racing in Darlington. I mean, I know that, I mean, oh gonna, man, would that not be perfect? <laughs> that would be awesome. Dale Junior goes out. That and would just, not be awesome. It's a technicality yet. <laughs> no, I'm going. I don't still racing. You know what? I, I think about like you know when I get out on the racetrack and I get out of the car and I'm pissed off i'm thinking about what what would i do that would piss them off piss off or embarrass my mother and if it's on that list i'm not doing it mm. so and especially it could be the very last race i ever run i'm not going to end my entire <laughs> career i'm going to book in my career with a, with a damn fight on pit road yeah i'm pulling for it all right one more uh fight related question before we move on um <laughs> what's the best fight uh between drivers that the fans never got to see or hear about I mean, obviously, uh, I think when any Stewart went into the holler and supposedly might have punched Kurt Busch at Daytona, they had a little dust up in practice, I believe. I remember that. And so I would, I, you know, th- that's the that's the question. I think what has happened in that holler that we don't know about, we'll never know about. We even tried to push uh, Stewart to tell us a little bit about what happened that particular time in the holler at Daytona with Kurt Busch, and he didn't go into detail, wouldn't go into detail about it. Um, he did say that there was some physical contact, uh, and that he might have punched Kurt. You know, those things, I get, you know, oh, I just remembered. I was in a fight. <laughs> oh. In the, oh. In the holler. Yeah, oh, with, yeah, we've with, talked about that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, with Tony's crew chief. Yeah. Okay, but did y'all swing? It wasn't, it wasn't zippy. zippy. It was way before Zippy. Oh. It was before Zippy? Yeah. yeah. Drag Zippy into this. <laughs> Zippy's going to be coming. Like, hey, what fight were we in? Um, but it's coming, there was. I don't even know. I don't remember this guy's name. He was Tony's crew chief when, his, when he was in his first season in Xfinity. And, oh, and, uh, okay. It was, I, no, I don't even think any, I punched the guy, but we were wrestling, and shirts got, you know, ripped off shirts. <laughs> and it was pretty... I was. It was pretty. Uh, that's uh, that's close so, as so, I ever came to being. So, in a fight. so you threw a punch, but it was more like Spencer Gallagher, John West Townley, is what you're saying. That ended up being sort of a little like bit that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit like that in the hallway of the NASCAR hauler. It's you know what happens. Like so, you would think that when you you would think, hey man, the hauler's like the principal's office. Right. When you go in there, you set your ass down mm-hmm. and you don't you don't say a word. But it's weird. Like when you go in there. And the other driver or whoever else you're having this confrontation with comes in there. It's like, oh, I can beat his ass, or I, I can do whatever I want. Nobody, you know, nobody can see it. Nobody can stop it. But the officials that might be in there, and you feel, you feel, I don't know. It, 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 it's more likely to be a fight in that space than it would be either on pit road, on the racetrack, uh, in the garage. For some reason, when you go in that holler. You're you just feel like you can unleash. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, I would expect you to feel that way. That would be cool. That that's what those doors. Are. They don't let people in there for any other reason. Yeah. I would. So you can air out your differences. Yeah. Right. And sometimes you just come unglued. 
you stay glued until you get into the hauler. Then you get in the hauler and you come unglued. <laughs> it seems like it'd be the other way around, right? But it's not. You go in there and you're like, oh, I'm going to do it now. You know, <laughs> here it comes. There you go. I wish I had seen uh, Bliss get the black eye from uh, Gordon that supposedly happened at the airport. Okay. Yeah. There's that would have been a There's good another one. one. We, we, we don't know the whole story. <laughs> Interesting. Been a lot of those a bit. Uh, Keith Akinson writes in, and he said the All Star qualifying race was fantastic and a blast to watch. What do you think if NASCAR did that every week? Twenty laps, where you finish is where you start. Do it in two groups. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, like every week at Pocono or Dover or uh, Sonoma, like twenty lap segments. Boom, boom, boom. Hammer it out. I don't know. I don't think I, I, I'm pretty good with the all-star race being. See, the, the great thing about the all-star race, and we read it in, in, um, in our odd history from last week, uh, when they're trying to come up with these rules, even back in the 80s for the all-star race, they said, hey, this race needs to be different than anything else. It needs to have components and a unique pro, uh, format and profile that, any, that no other race has. And so I think if you take this template – and apply it to every other race, then the all-star race loses its uniqueness and, and the equity that you have built up in it. So I think you got to leave, leave it all, leave that kind of stuff where it belongs. And, and that's an all-star race. Dale Hall wants to know, if you could start a four-car cup team using past or present drivers, who would you pick? Four-car cup team with past or present drivers. You definitely have to have Dale Earnhardt in there. I'd probably want to put uh, Kel Yarborough on my team. Uh, David Pearson would probably be on my team as well. And um, I think the uh, the fourth driver, boy, I'm going to probably make make this decision and then change it every five minutes for the rest of the day. <laughs> but, I, I mean, it'd be like Jeff Gordon, probably have, have Jeff in there, Jimmy. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of guys, but the top three for me would be Dad, Yarborough, Pearson, and then probably Gordon would be the fourth. Is that? Yeah. Am I breaking any rules there? Oh, there ain't no rules. Yeah. No rules. It's, it's, your, it's okay. your show. You know what you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dale Burke wants to know, uh, what's the most surprising thing about Isla that you didn't expect? I guess the uh, the most surprising thing about uh, being a dad or Isla that I didn't expect was the worry, uh, the constant worry. So I'm, I already have, like, real bad anxiety, and I've, I've sort of always dealt with, uh, you know, being super shy and, and really nervous. Uh, going into a lot of situations. So t- I already have this heavy sort of layer of anxiety all the time, and then you you got this little girl that, um, like, like yesterday, all right, we go to this, uh, we go to a brewery, and, and Amy's having a glass of uh, champagne, and I'm sitting there watching Isla, and, and at this brewery, there's a, the the patio is gravel. And Isla's trying to eat the rocks. Mm. And so um, I'm sitting there thinking, God, man, you know, every five seconds I've got to watch her, and she's trying to eat the rocks. And you tell her no, and she don't know. You know, she's trying to eat more rocks. And so I spent two hours, like, you know, freaking out about, like, her eating or swallowing a rock, and I'm I'm Googling on my phone, like, (laughs) what if baby eats rock? (laughs) What did it say? Oh man, it's like you know. No, it's like you gotta you stay after them. You got like what I was doing was what I should be doing, and that's basically following her everywhere she goes. And you know, as long as she'd let me hold her, I would. And then you know, when she wants to get down and walk around a little bit, you got to let her do that. Um, and then when she tries to eat a rock, you got to be there to stop her. 
And so, um, you know, I didn't drink any beer or, or, or anything and just sit there and tried to keep Isla from swallowing a rock for two and a half hours. And, um, I did not. So the, the most surprising thing about being a dad or Isla is the, the added worry of her being safe all freaking day. And uh, I didn't know, you know, everybody tells you, uh, all kinds of advice about, oh man, this is how you're going to, you got to get them on the nap schedule. You got to get them on a food schedule. You got to do this and that and the other and, 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 and buy these, you know, buy this trash can. Uh, you know, it's, everybody's got all kinds of advice. <laughs> Nobody ever says, um, you're going to worry to freaking death mm-hmm. now. Nobody ever tells you about the worry. Nobody mm. ever tells you that, well. that you're going to be paranoid uh, 90% of the time. Did you ever go on like a spring break trip with your buddies in no. high school or anything like that? Nope. Did you, Matthew? Spring break? Yeah. No. No. I'm a dork. I went I to races. I, can you imagine sending your kid? On, no. Now, like, like you think about I, worry. I don't even. I can't. I yeah. can't imagine. I can't even. It doesn't give me any anxiety even thinking about that because I can't even right. comprehend. No, I'm with you. How that would be? I, we, just we were talking about driving, learning how to drive and stuff like that, and I can't imagine her pulling out of the driveway for the yeah. first time. I, I, you know, you got a car. You got a license. You're free to go. Uh, just be home by X. Oh. I can't. Uh, I can't. <laughs> I can't. I know that I'm not going to be able to do anything that I want to do because I'm be sitting there worried about what she's doing. Yeah. And you damn right, I'm gonna have some GPS on that car. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah. That part is the most surprising part. Nobody ever. So to all the new parents out there, everybody who's expecting, your ass is getting ready to have a huge dose of anxiety that does not go away <laughs> no matter what. It is there all day, all night. It, it's it's just ridiculous. So I was already a worry wart, and now it it is uh, off the charts. All right, guys. I think that's all we have time for today. Appreciate everybody for, tune, uh, for tuning in to Ask Junior, presented by Nationwide. Uh, remember to follow uh, all of our social media handles at Dirty Mo Media. Uh, our YouTube channel, Twitter, Instagram. Don't forget to watch the show on NBCSN. White flag right there, white flag. All right, let's read some Apple iTunes reviews from the past weeks. Cool Hand 0087 says, This podcast is like butter for your ears. Oh, it's butter. always entertaining and makes my ride into work just, or just chilling at home, an easy feeling time. Uh, so Connell 324 says stumbled across this podcast after my brother shared you and Clint shotgunning beers on Twitter. You shotgunning beers is evangelizing the podcast. So should <laughs> do should you should do more of it. More well, I, of it. I definitely need to do a redo because I was obviously I obviously forgot that when you shotgun a beer that that is a fast activity. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just fine. You're enjoying no, 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 it. No, 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 no. Um, uh, I, I definitely um could do it a little quicker. Typical damn race. All right. Well, listen. I just was like, yeah, there's nobody around. I'm just, I but slowed down drinking my beer here. Lately. You had no idea that you were turning somebody onto a podcast by doing it, though, right? He says, I grew up watching NASCAR in the 90s with my dad and brother. Now he texts back and forth about the podcast throughout the week. Thank you for reconnecting us all. OP 070593, a lot of numbers in his OP. name. I love the podcast. I listen to it when I drive my semi. I want a Dirty Mo racing sticker to put on my racing cards. Uh, MTUJRL says, I never was a junior fan, but I also never appreciated what a genuine, forthright, caring man that he is. He's won me over. And P.S., hats off to you, Kelly Earnhardt Miller. It takes a special relationship for a sister to join her brother at military school. Dang right. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, lastly, listen, there's a bunch of people, a bunch of people who are still commenting about the gold that was John Force (laughs) and also the gold that was Richard Childress. So to everyone who enjoyed those episodes, thank you for the comments. Uh, We read them all. Just can't read them all here. But yeah, John Force still getting a lot of traction on the ratings and reviews on Apple iTunes show page. Dale, a couple upcoming things on your calendar. You will be visiting Nationwide Children's Hospital this week. That's always a good time going up there, checking that out. Next week, you have a speaking engagement at the Ohio State Brain and Health and Performance Summit. That'll be fun. I know you enjoy that. Yep. On June 8th, you will be doing an autograph session at the Cabela's in Greenville, South Carolina, on behalf of True Timber. And uh, lastly, thanks to all our sponsors this week and uh, also to our friends at Cadence 13 for all that, all the work you do. And that's it. All right, since I just got back from the Indy 500, I got a little odd history from Indianapolis, and this one's hard to believe. I would I would say that even even though it's said to be true, you're still not believing. I, I it? don't believe it. <laughs> I, I, I do not believe that this happened. Okay, let's so hear it. Maybe some of our listeners uh, can can get us some factual evidence. On the final day of qualifying for the 1978 Indy 500, USAC officials told Jim Herdeby he wouldn't be allowed to make a qualifying attempt because he hadn't gone fast enough in practice. Herdeby was enraged by this because there was no rule requiring a certain minimum speed. During a track cleanup period, he climbed in Bob Harkey's car and refused to get out, claiming if I can't qualify, nobody can. Mm. (laughs) He was convinced to get out of the car but stood in front of it when it was Harkey's turn to qualify. When Harkey was on the backstretch on his warm-up lap, Herbie walked onto the front stretch in one last protest before being tackled and led away by police. He was banned from the speedway for the rest of the event. I'm surprised if this really happened. He wasn't banned for life <laughs> right. for all these uh, crazy things. And and I've and I've heard this guy's a respectable racer. Yeah, Jim Herbie's. Yeah, I mean he's ran Daytona stock car, you know, stock cars and late model sportsman cup, all that stuff. I mean, he's he a, was pissed. He was a. He, he's not some random backmarker. This is a. This is crazy. I, I've never heard, I, I know, I think I've heard everything, but then you read this. Shot in the think? dark. Shot in the dark here. Is her to be still alive? Do we know I don't that? I think he is. If so, we well, will get you him know what? and verify this. Jim, if you're listening and you still are yeah. alive, I apologize. Call us. For that. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, oh, bummer. Sucks. Did, yeah. did, did yeah. he get run over? Did he die by a. No, <laughs> that's just a bad joke. That's, I, ain't that's, gonna I know. That's not a good one. I, hey, I backed her down. I backed her down before. I just can't believe it. Well, uh, so you can't believe that somebody not that he would go to the lengths at all. He says he, yeah. They say he did. Is this? Em- I just feel uh, this. This one could be embellished, uh, but hey, yeah. Who am I to uh, to refute it? Well, uh, listen. Let's get some verification here. Matthew Dillner is sort of like a rain man for yeah. this kind of stuff. I'm sure we're going to get plenty of it. <laughs> yeah. Once, once our listeners get a hold of this podcast. All right. Good show, guys. Yeah. Awesome. A lot of fun, man. Stone cold. Y'all ready to go wrestle? Anybody feel like you got body slammed or not? <laughs> anybody want to wrestle right now? Wrestle. Let's go wrestling. <laughs> All right, good stuff. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.